Hey, this is Joel Patterson, producer of the 20 by 70 podcast with a quick note to listeners. This episode, which features an interview with journalist Dave Daly about gerrymandering, was taped shortly before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling overturning the state's election map. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. God save the Commonwealth and this honorable court. Please be seated. To begin this case, I'd ask the court to imagine one of our petitioners, Bill Marks, high school civics teacher, former U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Imagine him standing online waiting to vote, and a gentleman comes up to him and says, good morning, Mr. Marks, Uh, we've decided to move your district. We don't want you to vote in this district. We passed a law that says you're gonna vote in a different district. And the reason we've decided to do that is because we think that you and your neighbors are likely to vote for the opposition candidate. And if you vote for the opposition candidate- You'll hear argument first this morning in case 16-1161, Gill versus Whitford. Mr. Saitlin. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court has never uncovered judicially manageable standards for determining when politicians have acted too politically in drawing district lines. Plaintiff social science metrics composed of statewide vote-to-seat ratios and hypothetical projections do not solve any of these problems. Instead, they would merely shift districting from elected public officials to federal courts who would decide the fate of maps based upon battles of the experts. Now, as a threshold, gerrymandering is having its moment. In cities and towns across America, the grassroots are awakening to the damage done by the practice of drawing election districts to benefit incumbents and partisan interests. In state capitals and in Washington, D.C., judges are pondering this question Could gerrymandering ever get so extreme and blatant that it becomes unconstitutional? And our Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is one of the focal points of this ferment. Lawsuits seeking landmark rulings on gerrymandering are based on Pennsylvania's 2011 congressional map. They're being heard in state and federal courts right now. I'm Chris Satulo, and this is 20 by 70, the scrappy little podcast for people who expect more out of Philadelphia and out of their democracy. We open this episode with voices discussing some of those court cases that are now weighing the question of whether in this digital age, gerrymandering has become so extreme that the court should step in. Now we're going to dig a little deeper into the issue with Dave Daly, the author of the book on redistricting and gerrymandering, Rat Fucked. Dave is a former editor of Salon. He's now a fellow with the Fair Vote Organization, and he continues to write about redistricting for publications such as The New Yorker and The Atlantic. Welcome, Dave. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And so, uh, as I mentioned, you wrote the book on gerrymandering, Rat Fucked, which uh, this podcast named one of its top nonfiction books of the year last year. Thank you. And has a lot to do, I think, with people's grasp of um, the inner workings of how partisan gerrymandering both happens and how it's been getting uh, more pronounced and perhaps more pernicious in, in recent years. In Rat Fucked, uh, the very first chapter of the book is about Pennsylvania. Why did you start with our beloved Commonwealth? I open Rat Fucked with a conversation about Pennsylvania because in many ways it is ground zero and the best uh, test case for understanding what happened in this last redistricting cycle. In 2010, the Democrats held a one-vote advantage in the House of Representatives. It's 102 
101. And the goal of what the Republicans tried to do in 2010 was to control redistricting and have all of the levers of power in every state so that they could draw the friendliest maps for themselves after redistricting when these next maps are drawn in 2011. So it becomes really, really important for Republicans to take control of state legislatures because that is usually where the power lies. Right. And Pennsylvania is a great target because, as you say, it was very close. It was you didn't have to flip it's many super seats. super close. And it's, it's, a, it's a lot of seats, too. So it's a big state. Exactly. So the Republicans launch a plan called REDMAP, which is short for the Redistricting Majority Project. $30 million plan. Really, it targets 107 state legislative seats nationwide because Republicans knew that if they could flip 107 state legislatives, they would have the power to draw themselves completely in rooms by themselves, no Democrats, no one else in these rooms, 193 of the 435 U.S. House seats. They understood the importance of controlling state legislatures. Um, and in all of these swing states, Pennsylvania especially, but also your neighbors in Ohio, in Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, state legislatures were incredibly close. These races are very cheap and inexpensive, so a couple hundred thousand dollars of, of, of negative ads dropped into these races in the last a couple of weeks before an election can have a huge effect. And when incumbents don't see this coming, it can just drown them. And that's what you saw in Pennsylvania in the fall of 2010, a direct hit on a whole bunch of Democratic incumbents. Republicans take control of the state legislature. They draw themselves incredibly friendly maps, not just for the state house, but for the U.S. Congress. And a congressional delegation that had been 12 Democrats and seven Republicans in a competitive swing state turns on these maps to a state that elects 13 Republicans and five Democrats with really very few, if any, swing districts. In fact, not one single seat has turned on these maps this entire decade. That's how strong and durable they are. Yeah, and for those of you doing the arithmetic in your head, that's because Pennsylvania lost one congressional seat in the apportionment after the census. Yeah, Dave, we've seen in Pennsylvania essentially a surge election for Barack Obama in 2012 where he won the state easily. And the result was 13-5. And then we saw a surge election for Donald Trump um, in 2016. Same result, 13-5. So it didn't really matter whether, you know, it was a great year statewide for Republicans or Democrats. The results in the congressional races are identical. Swing districts and swing states have no swing anymore. (laughs) Right. And it don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. Uh, (laughs) Uh, So in the book, you also look at some states where uh, authentic efforts at changing the process and getting a little more citizen involvement and a little less uh, partisan, you know, naked partisan advantage into the system happened. Um, But I'm afraid in the end, your report on those is not all that encouraging. Can you talk a little bit about those states? Sure. Um, I think a lot of people believe that – if we simply go to a commission, if we simply have a bipartisan commission or a nonpartisan commission draw these lines that 
we will have gotten the politicians out of the process. And I think that the evidence of this from across the country is not particularly promising. You've had a lot of states do various experiments with independent commissions over the course of the last decade or so. Um, and most of them, the politics simply gets sort of pushed a little bit lower. It, instead of being the, the tip of the iceberg, it's the kind of submerged piece of the iceberg. Um, so you have a state like Arizona that goes off and passes um, a really interesting reform bill designed to try to take the extremism out of the politics in the state. Um, and it sets up a five-person commission, except it sets up two Republicans Two Democrats, both of them appointed by the, the leadership of the of the parties in the state the legislature, and then one kind of independent person who who ends up on the committee through a process led by the appellate courts in the state. So, and that ends up being really tough duty, being that fifth person. Yeah. So you have four intense partisans, and then you have one kind of you know Bambi dropped into the process to be destroyed by the partisans except that the parties are smart enough to understand the importance of this position. So they try to game even that process. And there's a sense among both sides in Arizona that winning or losing redistricting there means getting a Trojan horse candidate of your own into the appellate court process so that they can chair the commission and then give yourselves a 3-2 advantage. The Republicans on the committee in, in Arizona are relatively sure that that's what happened to them in 2010, and they're intent on getting even in 2020. Um, in New Jersey, in Washington State, you have these uh, commissions that are essentially bipartisan commissions that become incumbent protection rackets, and you don't necessarily get more competitive districts as a result, you end up with re-elected incumbents. Well, when you wrote the book and when it was published uh, about a year and a half ago, um, gerrymandering wasn't at the top of many ordinary voters or citizens' reform agendas, even people who were somewhat attuned to you know politics and democratic reform. Uh, but a lot has happened in that vein since the book was published. Um, to 2017 saw in Pennsylvania and elsewhere a fairly remarkable uh, degree of grassroots interest and activism. So I assume you've been tracking that. Um, does it lead you to be a little less glum about the prospects of reform than you were, you know, when you wrote the last chapter of Ratfuck? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the amount of energy around this issue right now is is inspiring. And it's not just in Pennsylvania, it's in Virginia, it's in Michigan, it's in Ohio, North Carolina, Texas, Oklahoma. There is such an awareness now of sort of the the structural problems that gerrymandering creates, but also the everyday policy problems it creates and what it means when our our politicians are insulated from the ballot box. Um, I mean, I think in many ways it is a shame that it took these conditions 
to wake people up to this problem. But now that people are aware of it, um, there is amazing reform energy happening in states all over the country, and there's a litigation making its way through the courts that I think could augur a real change. Okay, I want to get back to the litigation in a moment. But first, Dave, I wonder if you can cite an example of something we've seen out of Congress in the last year or so um, where you can trace a a direct line, a through line from um, Project Red Map and what happened with the 2011 uh, redistricting and the way we're seeing Congress behave right now on a given issue. Sure, absolutely. Um, One of my favorite examples of this, it comes out of North Carolina, which along with Pennsylvania is one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. Um, And when they went ahead and redrew North Carolina's congressional districts in 2011, and this was led by Republicans in the state, legislature, they intended to draw a a map that would create 10 Republican districts and three Democratic districts in, again, a a pretty 50-50 state. And the Republican who chaired the uh, State House Committee has been very upfront about this. He said, I intended to to draw a 10-3 map because I didn't think I could draw an 11-2 map, (laughs) Um, which, you know, I mean, at least he's honest. I give him credit for that. But to get to 10-3, what the Republicans did was in the western part of North Carolina, you have the uh, funky college town of Asheville, which had been represented by a conservative Democrat by the name of Heath uh, Shuler. Football fans might remember him as a quarterback for Tennessee uh, Tennessee in college and then the Washington Redskins. And Shuler was um, a fairly conservative guy. Uh, he, he fit that district well because it represented Asheville as well as kind of the uh, western um, you know, mountain towns of that state, which are a little more red. And Asheville's kind of a blue oasis in the middle of it. Um, but what the Republicans did is they ran the district line right through the middle of Asheville. And if you're trying to gerrymander, there's essentially two ways of doing this. There's packing and there's cracking. Um, and packing is when you are trying to take all of the votes and stuff them into as few districts as possible. And cracking is trying to, to divide them up so that you make them as impotent as possible, kind of spread them thinly across as many districts as you can. Um, so the Democrats in Asheville got cracked into two different districts that now elect two very conservative people. One of them is Mark Meadows. Ah, the Freedom Caucus, yes. It is the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. So uh, this district has gone from being a competitive district that elected a conservative Democrat who would work with both sides to sending to Washington the chairman of the House the Freedom Caucus, who is a hell-no vote on just about everything. So it is Mark Meadows who files the parliamentary motion that leads to the end of John Boehner's a speakership. It is Mark Meadows who forces the 2013 government shutdown by trying to attach a repeal of Obamacare to keeping the government open. It's Mark Meadows and the Freedom Caucus that has driven the debate on immigration further right that stymied the Republicans' first attempt to undo Obamacare last year because it wasn't pure enough and it wasn't conservative enough for them. So the kinds of people that get elected from these very safe and uncompetitive seats, they are further to the extreme of their party. They are attuned most closely to winning primary fights in these parties, which means it's a race 
to the edge. It's a race to the base. And we send to Washington people who have no interest in all of the activity that we think of as being crucial to the, the art of government, listening to the other side, compromising, trying to figure out common ground, trying to find a way to actually solve problems. The politicians from these districts, when they behave in a way that we actually expect politicians to, that's the one thing that could actually earn them a primary challenge and get them kicked out of office. Thanks for that. So it essentially um, points out that if you care about health care, if you care about immigration, if you care about fiscal policy, if you care about taxes, all those issues have been um, shaped dramatically in Congress in the last decade because of the redistricting. But looking uh, at the court cases, and let me sort of just do a, a quick review. We have two cases already on the Supreme Court doc- docket, one from Wisconsin challenging a Republican gerrymander, um, which um, resulted in a lower court ruling that probably, you know, for the first time agreed to certain mathematical standards that would enable courts to recognize when partisan gerrymandering has gone over a constitutional line. The one from Maryland that challenges a Democratic gerrymander in that state. And then we have just recently um, the ruling on the North Carolina map that you were just referencing, um, which overturns that map and calls for it to be immediately redrawn um, before the uh, 2018 elections, which will be a a difficult challenge. So all those cases are rattling around. We also had a Pennsylvania case that got not too much attention, um, but essentially made the same constitutional argument as the North Carolina plaintiffs. But a different um, appeals court panel rejected the plaintiff's argument. They've also appealed. So you have essentially the same arguments out of Pennsylvania and North Carolina also going to the Supreme Court on appeal with different rulings. So how do you sort through all of that? What, what would be your prediction for uh, how the court, and by the court, of course, I mean Justice Anthony Kennedy, the swing vote, <laughs> how, how do you think this might play out? What, what would be your betting man's uh, analysis? Well, I think all of this begins with a different case out of Pennsylvania. All of this begins with the 2004 Veep case out of Pennsylvania, in which you had um, a bunch of Democrats Democratic voters in Pennsylvania who were complaining that the 2000 redistricting maps really created an unfair burden on Democratic voters in the state. Right. And how um, quaint that seems now, Dave, thinking that that map I know, was, right? ger- was gerrymandering. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the court rejected the arguments by those Democrats. But the key opinion in this case comes from Justice Kennedy who, while siding against these Pennsylvania voters, he essentially laid out a roadmap for future gerrymandering challenges, a lot of which have now arrived at the court. And Justice Kennedy said that he did not see a manageable standard in the Veith case, but that he was open to one at a future time. And he said that the very technology that makes it possible for these legislators to do these amazing, effective gerrymanders might also provide a way to detect them and that the court ought to be open to a remedy if one appears down the line. So all kinds of good government reformers and political scientists and law school professors immediately head out in a quest for the silver bullet democracy theorem that might satisfy Justice Kennedy. They called up every mathematician they knew and said, what do you got? (laughs) They sure did. And that's what we're looking at in the courts right now. 
And the speculation has been that they're trying to find a way to attach a Democratic gerrymander as well as a Republican gerrymander so that whatever conclusion that the court draws here, if they can come down on this and find a standard, they can say that it is a bipartisan one, that both sides do it, and that it is bad no matter what. It's antithetical to the idea of a representative democracy, and let's try and solve it. So my sense is that we are going to see at least a limited standard out of the courts probably in June, and that it will provide some kind of a bright red constitutional line that politicians can't cross when they are drawing these lines. It's probably not going to be as much of an answer as we would hope, but it would probably rein in the most extreme of these partisan gerrymanders. Right, but it still leaves a lot of room to be done at the state legislative level or at the grassroots reform level to get a more authentic process. It's going to leave an awful lot of space. And I think what people also need to understand is that these computer programs are only getting better. Um, And that if the court draws a bright red line, the politicians are going to find a way to walk right up to it, assuming that they don't ignore it completely. Back in 2011, I don't think most of us had even heard the term big data. But now the amount of data about an individual voter's preferences, not just political, but, you know, what magazines they subscribe to, what cars they buy, do they belong to, you know, the NRA or the Sierra Club, all that's going to be available for sale to any political operative. So they can, they can get even more precise if they're left to their own devices. Wouldn't you say that's true? They will be able to be so much more precise this time. I mean, at Trump's FCC, one of the very first things that they did was they said that your Internet service provider can now sell all of your Google searches. Um, there was a story the other day about a Google self-driving car that can uh, go down a street, and simply by looking at the cars that are parked in front of the driveway, they can tell you with almost absolute certainty how the people inside vote. Um, this is how apparent and partisan and polarized we are. Um, there's a line in the North Carolina ruling last week that talks about how if you were to deviate from the maps that were drawn only by a small percentage, you would have completely different results out of those lines. So. We often think about gerrymandering as being about funny-looking districts. And while that can be true, these districts are not funny-looking to the people who draw them. They know precisely who lives along each and every one of those weird curves. There is nothing arbitrary about how funny they look. The map makers know with extreme precision what happens if they were to move that line a block or two in any direction and there's a reason why it sits where it sits and you'd get very different results if those lines moved. Uh, just as an aside, David, when you were talking about the FCC ruling on selling data, I'll bet there are a lot of men in Philadelphia that are just praying now that uh, Comcast won't sell the data to their <laughs> wives. Um, 
Thanks for that um, comprehensive but quick uh, tour of the state of play. Um, before I let you go, I have to ask one question, which I'm sure you're asked a lot, but I can't avoid asking it. How in the world did your book get named, and how did you get that name past the publisher? <laughs> uh, I mean, gerrymandering was the topic that put all of us to sleep in, in 10th grade civics class. Um, it makes your eyes glaze over. But in fact, it's really, really interesting and exciting. And to the politicians and to the partisans and the operatives who are involved in it, they know exactly how important it is and why it matters so much. So I had to give this book a title that would not put people to sleep. Um, And we actually sold it, believe it or not, as Gerrymandered Nation, which is a title that would put people to sleep. <laughs> One last thing. As you know, here at the Committee of 70, we've discussed this. We're working on a project called Draw the Lines. Its goal is to take the same mapping software that the pros use in the ways you described and put it in the hands of ordinary voters, whether they're or even pre-voters, you know, kids in, in high school or college students or millennial Great. affinity groups or senior citizens in their retirement communities. And to show them how easy it is to draw a more sensible map than the ones the politicians gave them. Um, What's your thought about uh, what difference draw the lines could make? I think when you demystify this process and when you show people the common sense that's involved, you can completely wake them up. The amazing thing to me over the course of this last cycle has been when computers or individuals draw their own maps or when computers draw thousands of random maps involving the actual criteria that the legislators are supposed to use, the maps that the people come up with are always not only fairer and more competitive, but they do a better job of keeping communities together. They do a better job of satisfying all of the criteria that's laid out here. The maps that we have in most of these states make no sense. They are designed for partisans and bipartisans. And we should not be surprised that they yield incredibly partisan politics as a result. But when we take this power back, when we see what happens, when we do it, it can change absolutely everything. So I I really am excited by this project and just think it has the ability to dramatically change the way people perceive this and understand it. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. We've been talking with David Daly, author of the book Rat Fucked. Thanks so much, Dave, for uh, sharing your wisdom with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm joined now in the Wexler studio at Kelly Writer's House on the Penn campus by David Thornburg, the CEO of the Committee of Seventy. And David, you were listening in as uh, we talked with Dave Daly, author of Rat Fucked, about gerrymandering. What were some of your big takeaways from the, what he said? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a treat to, to hear him talk because he is the man. Uh, I mean, this is the primer on uh, all things partisan gerrymandering. Um, first thing, and, and, uh, and maybe most important, because this is the ambient question in the air, uh, is whether the courts, whether Justice Kennedy, how's this all going to play out? And I was struck by his judgment that uh, uh, it's likely that the court's going to come down with some standards, but they're going to be very broad standards. Um, that will leave ample room for the operatives to keep doing what the operatives do, which is to get as close as possible to the line, the bright red line that's drawn by the courts, 
without overstepping it, which doesn't give you a whole lot of confidence that the the post decision maps are going to be uh, much more uh, much better or 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 speak to common sense than the ones we had before. Right. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the court ruling is a necessary step towards reform, but it doesn't get it done all by itself. Yeah, necessary but not sufficient. Right. We'll say. It, yeah, my way of thinking about it is they they might hopefully put some guardrails on the runaway partisanship that we saw last time around. But inside those guardrails, there's still plenty of rooms for 10-car pileups sure. you know, where people will get hurt. Yeah, and I think you know his comment about the, the success, uh, limited success of independent commissions also reminds us that it's really hard to take politics out of this process because it's a political process and there's a lot at stake. So uh, the, the, the operative question for folks like us, uh, like us is how can you – uh, provide people with the tools? Uh, how can you influence uh, the political process in such a way that we end up with uh, more common sense, uh, fairer maps, which I would suggest leads us to our favorite uh, soon-to-be-announced initiative at Draw the Lines. Right. It was good to hear uh, Dave, who you know really ends his book on a somewhat glum and, and almost cynical note about the possibility of reform, to sound more upbeat generally about what he's seen happening at the grassroots and the reform energy, and specifically had some nice things to say about our project, which yeah. is always nice. And just to uh, affirm what we've seen and what others seen is this astonishing, remarkable upwelling of citizen energy around this issue, which, as he said, you know, gerrymandering almost by definition was one of the put you to sleep, uh, the my eyes glaze over topics that you'd encounter, uh, you know, in your junior uh, civics class or whatever. And it, it is remarkable that that energy is out there, that it's uh, opening all kinds of creative possibilities and certainly – that which we hope to to capture uh, here in Pennsylvania with Draw the Lines. Yeah, and Dave jumped right through to what you might call the operating logic or, or premise of what we're doing with Draw the Lines, the idea of putting the mapping software in the hands of ordinary folks. It's that one reason that it's been done by closed doors is that people are persuaded that it's this extremely mystifying and difficult thing, you know, for professionals only, you know, right. don't, don't cry, don't, nothing to see here. We'll take care That's of it. Right. Um, and what we're trying to show is, as, as Dave said, when you give, when you put the digital tools in the hands of ordinary folks, just using their common sense and their sense of community, they draw maps that fit the constitutional yeah. requirements far better than uh, what we normally get out of legislation. Yeah, also music to my ears was his comment about people versus algorithms, that consistently when we give people the chance to draw lines and then turn the algorithms loose, people end up drawing better, more common sense, more fair maps. So that, I, I hope, pushes back on that strain of the reform group that says, ah, oh, let's just turn this over to the mathematicians and the algorithms. Right, because just like every budget, it's a bunch of numbers, but it incorporates values. A map may be just a bunch of lines, and a computer could draw them in a somewhat, you know, satisfactory way. But the computer doesn't know what a region's sense of its own community of interest is. It doesn't know, um, uh, you know, how people relate and, and where people would like their representatives to live. It doesn't know any of that. Yeah, it only and, knows and, what you tell it. Right. And one algorithm can't talk to another algorithm <laughs> and come to some compromise about, uh, you know, how you split the difference between the, 
uh, you know, the, the two paths. So that's a human process, and that, to me, is, yeah. that's the way it should be. One other thing I've been wondering about, like hearing people who have a, a lot of faith in just turning it over to the computers, um, we've heard a lot about algorithms in the last few months, including Facebook. <laughs> Much of it not so good. Yeah, and so just trusting the algorithm might be um, a less promising path than it seemed just a few short months yeah, ago. Yeah, we'll hope we can push that to the rear. And So what's the uh, what's the hope for timeline with Draw the Lines? Well, as, as you know, because we've been in hot pursuit of this for about a year, we've had any number, I'm going to say 50 different conversations with funders. We have a couple of significant uh, decisions coming up soon. And if all goes according to plan, we launch the formal competition uh, in fall of 2018. Spring of 2018, we'll finish the district builder software and we will um, uh, beta test this and sort of do a soft launch around the Commonwealth just to kind of warm up the muscles. But uh, uh, fall of 18 is, is go time as far as the competition goes. Well, thanks very much, David Thornburg, for that review of what we're looking at with Draw the Lines. And you mentioned that we've talked to a lot of funders. Um, just as a final kind of salute to the uh, influence of Dave Daly's book, uh, we've been sitting in some pretty august precincts, pretty high up in some towers, and what is usually very polite um, company at foundations. And it's guaranteed that at one point during that meeting, someone will ask us what? Have you read that book? Have you read that five? book? Right. Yeah. Sometimes. Or sometimes they'll they just say, have you read that um, book? <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll hold it up and <laughs> we'll right. all laugh. But it is a tribute to the, the job of reporting and, uh, and pushing out difficult but important information. That and Dave great storytelling. With. Yeah. You know, the yeah. foundation of all great reporting. Right. So we thank Dave for joining us on this episode of 20 by 70, which will now wrap up by saying thanks to a number of people. Of course, first, our guest, Dave Daly and uh, David Thornburg, CEO of the Committee of 70. And as usual, we want to thank our intrepid producer sitting in the studio on the other side of the glass from me, Joel Patterson, joined by our engineer from Writer's House, Zach Cardner. Thanks as always to them. And again, thanks to the sponsor and our partner every uh, episode in 20 by 70, Young Involved Philadelphia. That's it. We've wrapped up another episode. So I'm going to end it as we always do, saying to all of you out there, living in Philadelphia and beyond. Expect more out of Philadelphia and more generally out of your democracy. This is Chris Satulo. See you next time. August 1920 Mother Jones put out the call To the hills of West Virginia Came 13,000 strong Riding loose the old special Boone County